many of us do not like tests or exams. I see it on Facebook periodically. Someone will post, please pray for me. I have a test coming up or I have an exam uh, for a certification. Or I see parents sometimes post, hey, my, my child has a final coming up or uh, they're really worried about, please pray for them. When I was uh, in college, we had a professor that uh, his prayer always scared me a little bit. And Dr. Roark, at the beginning of the class, before he would offer one of the major exams, he would pray for the students. But his prayer went something like this. Heavenly Father, please be with these students and allow them to uh, do as well as what they have prepared on this exam. Uh, that was not the prayer that I was looking for in Intro to Philosophy uh, from Dr. Roark. Tests can be disconcerting sometimes, and today we're going to look at two tests that John gives to us of how we can know that we're saved. They're two salvation tests is what it boils down to. It's going to be in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Before we get there, I want you to, to hear this because some people don't, don't even believe that you can know God or that you can know for sure that you're saved. One of the most disconcerting passages in all of Scripture, uh, you've heard me reference it, I preach from it uh, many times, comes from Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. And Jesus had just given an illustration about fruit, and he says, you'll know them by their fruit. And then beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 7, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? And then I will announce, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. That's a scary text because essentially Jesus is saying there's a lot of religious people who are regularly religious. They are regular attenders. They actually even do great. They're preachers. They proclaim the word of God. They, they are casting out demons. They're doing all kinds of good works. And he says something that's very key to our study in John. Jesus said, I'm going to have to look at him and say, I never knew you. See, it wasn't about what those religious people did for him that equated to salvation, their eternal hope. It was about a relationship with a living Christ. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, and that's where our text is for today as we continue our study of 1 John. Here in, in chapter 2, verse 2, or verse 3, I'm sorry, Scripture begins, this is how we know that we know Him, <clears throat> if we keep His commands. The one who says, I have come to know Him and yet does not keep His commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have heard from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. 
But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I want you to note three things uh, right off the bat out of this text that, that, that we need to nail down. The first one is this. The text suggests that, yes, we can know God. You can have a relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. Verse 2, right off the bat, says this is how we know. Not only can we know God, because I've heard there's people today that say, well, you can't really know God. Yes, you can. God has revealed himself to us and has given us an opportunity to know him. His word says so. Second, you can have assurance. You can know that you know God. I've sat with people before, and I believe I mentioned this last week, who would say, well, I've, I, I, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. I confess him as Lord. I believe that he rose from the dead. I've walked with him all of my life, but I just don't know for sure that if I die, I'm going to heaven. Those people tend to be uh, very, here's the theological word, Arminian in their faith. They believe that you can lose your salvation. And this guy's issue in particular was because I might do something, I might sin in some way right before I die. I, I can't imagine somebody that, that has a relationship with Christ, is an adopted son of God, and they're driving down 183 or driving down I-35, and somebody pulls out in front of them and they yell a curse word right before they hit them and die. And you're going to hell for that, Right? Well, that's that belief that you can't have an assurance of your salvation. If you sin one time and it's unforgiven, unrepentant sin, then you die and you go to hell. That's not the God. That's not what God teaches in Scripture. You can have assurance of your salvation because your salvation is not built on your faithfulness. Your salvation is dependent upon his faithfulness. And if you're a child of God... He will hold you until the end. He'll care for you. So first, you can know God. Second, you can know that you know God. And third, he's going to give us these tests. And the first is going to follow quickly on the heels of this, comes right out of verse 3. Obedience is evidence that we know him. Obedience doesn't cause us to enter into a relationship with Christ, but obedience is the evidence that we know him. He ends verse 3 by saying, if we can know that we know him, if we keep his commands. And so <clears throat> this is going to be a very simple, straightforward message today, because in this text, there are two tests that you can apply to your own heart, apply to your own life, and examine yourself so that you can know that you know that you belong to Christ. You don't have to be surprised one day when you stand before the throne of God and he says, sorry, I never knew you, depart from me. You can know that you know him. That word know appears uh, in, in the verbal form more than 30 times in this letter of 1 John. It appears in one form or another uh, verbal or nominative form, in some form, 42 times in this short letter. I told you that the theme, the primary thesis of John is he's writing this so that we might know that we have eternal life. He says that in 1 John chapter 5. Here he gives us two tests. The first one is this, do you obey his commands? Now this is a tricky one and this is a scary one because we all fail at times. 
But as you read these first four verses, and let me just read through them again, you'll, you begin to pick up on this, the, 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 the truth, not that obedience is a, a prerequisite for salvation, but obedience is an outcome. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Every verb in this test in 1 John chapter uh, 2, 3 through 6 is a, a... a verb in the present tense. It's a continuous action kind of verb. And so in verse 6, when he says that we walk as he walks, it, it indicates that we are on a trajectory toward Christ. We're on a tra- trajectory toward obedience. Here's four ways to look at this. First of all, knowing God is more than just head knowledge. This text makes that clear and evident. It's more than just learning uh, a theology or, or learning some type of systematic approach to God. Knowing God is going to involve something that takes place in our head and in our heart and in our spirit. It's going to bring about a change of life. One cannot truly know God in a relational way and not change and not see God at work within us. So knowing God is more than head knowledge. Second, knowing God is displayed in obedience to his command. So there in verse three and four, you have a positive statement and a negative statement. The positive statement is this, we know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says I've come to know him and yet does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I wonder if John, as he wrote this test, had in mind that last evening that he and the disciples spent with Jesus, Really beginning there in John chapter 13, in the gospel of John 13, down through John chapter 16. Because in John 13 and 14, you hear twice Jesus say, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He's speaking to his disciples and he's communicating with them, because you have a love relationship with me, you know what I want. You know my word, and you desire to keep my word. This morning in our uh, growth group, I, I may have jumped the gun a little bit, and if so, Sandra and, and Nathan, I'm sorry about this, but the Lord is, is, has been leading us to work on uh, a marriage retreat for the spring. Last year, we did one that was a particular marriage retreat, and it was for uh, young adult couples uh, to connect with some of the older couples in the church. Some of y'all were involved, not everybody, but there's there's a desire throughout our church to have a marriage retreat weekend kind of thing. And so uh, we're excited about it. Tony and Vanessa Wolf are going to be coming. They're going to help lead it, but we're also going to have people in our church planning it. And then we have some in our church who are going to be uh, doing some breakout sessions. So we're, we're going to be looking for somebody to help teach uh, couples or, or work with couples on financial, uh, you know, how, how to do finances in marriage, communication in marriage. And I had volunteered uh, my wife and I to teach breakout sessions. And last year, if, if you were involved in that, you'll remember the direction we taught. And, and so work on the, did you just mute me? 
We're going to work from the book, His Needs, Her Needs. And I'm going to teach a breakout session on uh, what wives wish their husbands knew about women. And she's going to teach a session on what, what husbands wish their wives knew about men. So we're going to separate and we're going to teach these breakout sessions. She didn't know that until I was introducing it to the group this morning and, and uh, heard the words that came out of her mouth were this, well, I better start studying. I thought, you've been working on it for 35 years, but here's, here's where my mind went almost immediately afterwards. I was really glad she didn't look at me and say, you better start studying. <laughs> the truth is, my wife does an incredible job in so many ways of showing her love to me. And her love is fleshed out with individual acts of kindness and generosity all the time. Not because she has to, but because she wants to, because we have a love relationship with each other. And that's that's what Jesus is talking about. When you're walking in a love relationship with Christ, his commands or his word, he, John uses that, those two words interchangeably here, the, the word of God or the words of Christ and the command or commands of Christ. And you see them both in, in plural and singular. There's a lot of deep study you can, you can do when you go into that. We, we'll, we'll stay away from that today. But the, but the idea is you will follow him. You'll obey his word. You'll, you'll do things that are pleasing in the eyes of God when you love him, when you walk in a love relationship with him. What, what would seem like a sacrifice otherwise may not seem like sacrifice. It just comes out naturally because of the love relationship. And so, do you obey his commands? Knowing God is more than head knowledge is displayed in obedience to his commands, it requires a relationship with his son. As I read commentaries on this text, uh, scholars sorted through uh, the, the particular question here of uh, when it says that we have to know him and keep his word, who's the him it's talking about? Is the him referenced in this text God the Father, or is the him referenced in this text Christ the Son? When I first read through it, my eyes just kind of glassed over at the commentators because I'm like, does it matter? Who really cares? Because if I'm in a love relationship with the Father, I'm going to love his Son. If I'm in a love relationship with the Son, I'm going to love the Father. Yeah. I guess technically it does matter, and, and the answer to that is in this text, in context in particular, John is pointing back to the Father, is the, the uh, reference of the, that third person pronoun here, him. So when he says, keep his commandments, it's speaking of keeping the Father's commandments to know him, to know the Father, but you know the Father through the Son. And in that same context from John chapter 14 that I believe John has in mind here, not just because of the content of the first question, but the content of the second question that we're going to look at, the second test. Jesus said, my father loves you. He's built a place for you. He sent me to die for you. And, and the only way you can get to the father is through me. And if you love me, you'll follow me. If you love the father, you'll follow me. If you love me, you'll, you'll, you'll worship the Father. 
There, there, you cannot separate that. But knowing God, if you're going to know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, you know him through his son. Jesus was the full representation of the nature and the glory of God embodied in human flesh so that we can know God. So to know God requires a relationship that comes only through the Son of God. And then fourth, knowing God causes us to walk as he walked. Causes us to walk here that he references Christ, I believe. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. If you know God, you're going to walk in a trajectory that Christ walked. Does that mean that you will never stumble? No, I already addressed that. Yes, you and I are going to stumble until we're able to shed this body of flesh and step out of it into the, the, the glories of the presence of Christ. We're going to struggle and we're going to stumble. But that doesn't mean that you don't get up and you keep walking toward God. Here's the question. Has your life been on a trajectory of obedience? Is your life moving toward obeying God? Or have you shut God out and turned your back on him and walked away? That's the test of salvation. It's not, have you ever made a mistake, or do you make a mistake, or will you make mistakes? Will you sin in the future? That's not the question. The question is, are you walking toward God? Are you on a trajectory of obedience, seeking to follow God? When you fail, when you fall, do you apologize? Do you confess your sin? Do you repent of your sin? And do you look to God and say, Father, I'm so sorry. I've sinned against you and I've sinned against others. Forgive me. That's the difference. If your life is not on a trajectory of obedience, you need to examine whether or not you have a relationship with God. Because if your life is not on a trajectory of obedience, it means you're turned away from Christ and you're headed toward death. The second question appears in the second paragraph here, beginning in verse 7, so 7 through 11. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, I'm going to qualify something here very quickly because John is particularly addressing, do you love other Christians, brothers and sisters? He uses that language specifically. That does not mean that you, we ought not love the lost of the world, okay? It's, that's something separate. But evidence of eternal life, evidence that you're saved will be displayed in your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can continually show contempt toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you need to examine your heart because you're probably not saved. And let me say one that's a tough one here. Because I don't believe that you're saved by attending church. But if you do not have a desire to regularly come together with brothers and sisters in Christ to worship the holy God who sent his son to die on a cross for you and rose from the grave, if you don't have a desire to gather together with brothers and sisters in Christ, you are not loving them and you better examine your heart. That is a test John gives us for whether or not we're saved. 
if you don't have it within you that you want to be with other believers. Now, some of, some of these sheep stink. Some of us stink, right? And, and, and as believers, we've talked about this. I mean, if I'd, I'd love for, to have another opportunity to, to do a study of the spiritual gift test because some of you are gifted in ways that I don't get. Some of you have the gift of mercy. And when someone sins, someone does something, you know, I'm going to tell them they did something really stupid and they deserve what they're getting. You're going to sit down next to them and you're going to say, oh, I'm sorry you're going through this rough time. Let me love you through it. No! You need to tell them what God's Word says and tell them to straighten up. If they don't straighten up, they're going to go to hell, right? The teacher in me, the prophet in me does not understand some of you that are merciful. <laughs> but what I've learned is some of you that have the gift of mercy, you don't get me. You don't understand why I can be so harsh and hard. But you know what? There's only one who perfectly expressed the gift of prophecy and mercy and perfectly, I mean, prophecy and teaching on one end of the spectrum and mercy and service on the other end of the spectrum, and that was Jesus. And what he's done is he's given some of you the gift of mercy and some of you the gift of administration and some of you the gift of teaching and some of you the gift of prophecy and some of you he's gifted as leaders and, and he's put us all together in, in the, the church and he, he said that you're supposed to function together as a body of Christ. And so if you're, a, if you're a foot, don't try to do what the eye does. And if you're a nose, don't try to do what the hand does. You do your job. And he brings us all together. And when we function together in unity, gathered together, filled with his spirit, every joint lubricated with love, we accomplish the purpose of Christ. The body accomplishes all that it needs to accomplish. If somebody only sees me and how I function without working with the rest of the body, they're going to get a skewed vision of what Christ looks like. But when I'm working together with other believers, some who are very different than me, some who see things quite differently than me, and we're able to function together and love each other, then we put on display Jesus for a lost and dying world to see. I believe that's why Jesus said, and I think that this is another text that John is reaching back to, John chapter 13, when Jesus said, the world will know that you're my disciples when you love one another. John 13, 34 and 35. I give you a new command, Jesus says. He's using the language that John's using here in 1 John. So John chapter 13, the gospel of John chapter 13. He says, I'm giving you a new command that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's how the world will know that you're my disciples. Jesus commands us to love each other. Because that's how the world's going to know that we all belong to him. So, here's some questions that go along with this test. Do you show love for other believers in your words and in your actions? Do you regularly show love for your brothers and sisters in Christ in your words 
and in your actions. Let me push that a little bit more. What about the words that you type on Twitter? There's a few in Southern Baptist leadership I'd like to ask that question of. Do you regularly show love for other brothers and sisters in Christ through how you communicate electronically and face-to-face? Now, this is both, it has a passive sense and an active sense because love is active. Love reaches out. Love wants to go to someone that is hurting and, and wants to provide for them, care for them, serve them. So do you actively seek out brothers and sisters who are hurting and pray for them and provide for them and serve them? It's also passive. When, and what I mean by that is, is do you not lash out when another brother or sister hurts you? How do you treat a brother or sister in Christ when they sin, in particular when they sin against you? Do you treat them with love? See, the, to, to love others is not just an emotion. It's not just a feeling. That word love is one of those, those words that it kind of gets worn out. Dr. Allen, in his commentary, he said, hey, the, the word love is kind of like currency. The more that you, you uh, use it, the more it gets passed around from person to person, the more it gets kind of sullied and dirtied, and, but it never loses its value, right? And so it, it's a weird kind of word that can express what, why Jesus died on a cross for your sins and my sins. It can express the, the feeling that you have or, or the, the relationship that you have with your wife, but it can also be used to express uh, your feelings for your sports team, right? Or smoked ribs, right? I love the Cowboys. I love my smoked ribs. I love my wife. And they're not all the same. Okay, I hope. Uh, that, that word love, though, can, can carry with it all kinds of shades of meaning. I think sometimes it gets watered down. So what does Scripture mean here when it uses this word love? The word love expressed in this context is that God kind of love, that agape love that says, I'm going to value you, and I'm going to care for you, and I'm going I'm to do something for you. I'm going to provide for you even when you don't deserve it. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. I believe the greatest example that we have of love may very well be Jesus going from the garden to the cross. When Jesus in the garden, essentially, I'm going to put it in my words, cries out to God, Father, if there's any other way, remove this cup from me. I don't want to die. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done because of his love for his Father and his love for us. He stands up, fixes his eyes on the cross, and goes and he bleeds and dies for us. When at any moment he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free because he was God. He didn't have to die. He died because he loved us. That's what love is. That's the kind of love that John is calling us to here. This isn't the only time. John uses that word love 25 times in this passage, in, this, in, in 1 John. There's a whole theme in, the, in John chapter 4. The whole theme is about the love of God. Do you show love to other believers 
in your words, and in your deeds. Because Scripture's once again pretty clear here. If you don't, you're walking in darkness. The one who hates his, who, who says he's in the light, but hates his brother or sister, is in darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him. So do you show love for other believers in your words and actions? Do you put others' needs above your own desires? This is a, a difficult question in our self-help culture because there's a, there's a truism. If you're not healthy, you really can't take care of others. But if you're walking in a love relationship with the Lord and He's providing for you and taking care of you, the question I posed it intentionally this way, do you put other people's needs above your own desires? Are you willing to, to give up something extra that the Lord may have blessed you with to take care of somebody who's hungry? That's what I'm getting to here. Are you willing to make that kind of sacrifice for your brothers and sisters in Christ? I think sometimes God calls us to make greater sacrifices than that. I think sometimes God calls us to do what the little boy did in, in the feeding of the 5,000, to give up our whole lunch so that God can use it to feed others and trust that the Lord's going to take care of us. So yeah, sometimes I think God calls us to give up our provision so that He can use it to provide for our brothers and sisters in Christ and trusting that He's going to take care of us. But I believe that in all cases, God is going to call us sometimes to give up our desires, what we want, so that we can take care of our brothers and sisters' needs. And that's just challenges us financially, challenges us at that very root and core, but I want it. It's mine. No, it's not. No, it's not. The lesson I learned as a young, young adult was that everything I have, everything I have is a gift from God. It's not mine. It's His. We're not called to be owners. We're called to be stewards. There's so many great examples of that, but here's one of the best. When you take your last breath on this earth, how, many of it, how much of your stuff is still yours? None of it. You have stuff. I have stuff. It may be stuff in a bank account. It may be stuff in my house. It may be my house. I have stuff. I have relationships. Now, that's one thing that lasts beyond the grave, what you did in your relationship for other people and, for, and, and with the Lord. But even those relationships change when you come to the grave. All of that, all of it is temporary. And God's called us to be stewards of it all. Well, steward means that he's the owner, I'm the caretaker, and I do with all of this stuff what he wants me to do with it. As soon as I decide that it's mine, claim it for myself, and become disobedient in how I use the stuff, I'm no longer acting as a steward, I'm acting as a thief. Because I've taken what belongs to my father for my own. That's the, the young man who came to Jesus and asked him, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And he said, well, I've done those since I was a kid. I've obeyed all of them since I was a kid. Now, you, know, you wonder about that. Did he really obey all the commandments with their full intent? So Jesus asked, asked him a probing question. Okay, give up all your wealth and give it to the poor and come follow me. 
he put his head down and walked off because he couldn't do it. It was an indication that he had broken the first commandment. His stuff was more important to him than God. So he's an idolater. Is your stuff more important to you than your relationship with Christ? If so, you're an idolater. See, if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, as, as we love Christ, we're willing to lay it all out and say, Lord, it's yours. And we're willing to give up sometimes our wants so that we can provide for someone else's needs. Good test question for you. Test question number three of do you love other believers is do you avoid actions that call your brothers, causes your brother or sister to stumble? This is a good one because <clears throat> this gets to the heart of a lot of little struggles that we have in life. But it comes straight out of the text. He says, uh, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. If I'm walking in the light and my, my brothers and sisters in Christ see me walking in the light, if there's something in my life that causes them to stumble, I need to stop it. Because if I'm causing them to stumble, it's a lack of love. I'm going I'm to bring out one, just throw it out on the table, whether you like it or not. I grew up with that old Baptist mentality that, that alcohol absolutely 100% is a sin. And if you sniff it or you get too close to it, you're sinning, Right? Uh, you, you can't touch it. The problem is, I also grew up with Baptists who said, we believe the Bible and we're people of the Bible, and I see where Jesus turned water into wine. And I have a disconnect there. I struggle with that a little bit. So as I worked through that, as I grew into adulthood, I've had to develop my own understanding in how I view uh, alcohol uh, the, the, the use of alcohol, I, I mean, honestly, last night, I've been struggling with these allergies and coughing and hacking, and you know, I, I drank some NyQuil before I went to bed. <laughs> NyQuil has about as much alcohol in it as a shot of whiskey. Is alcohol or any consumption of alcohol a sin? I, I honestly, brothers and sisters in Christ, and please don't kill me for this, I honestly don't believe that that is the overall teaching of the text of all of Scripture. Drunkenness is absolutely a sin. No question whatsoever. Scripture is clear that drunkenness is sin. But let me put this one out there for you. We live in a culture where... Public consumption of alcohol by a professing believer could cause another believer to stumble. So if I'm hanging out at Chili's Bar and Grill, Chili's isn't a sin, right, even though it starts with bar and grill, because we go there to eat ribs or you know, burgers. If I'm hanging out at Chili's Bar and Grill and I'm consuming alcohol, and a, a, a somebody who is less mature in the faith, maybe more mature in the faith, but they have a different view on alcohol than me, and they walk in and they see the pastor consuming alcohol publicly at Chili's, could it cause him to stumble? Yes. So should I drink alcohol at Chili's? No, absolutely not. Because it could cause a brother or sister to stumble, and it is a lack of love. If I love my brothers and sisters in Christ enough 
to live a life out in front of them in a way that does not cause them to stumble. I will give up some of my freedoms that you may have in Christ. I'll be willing to set aside what I could claim as my freedom. Well, I'm walking with Jesus. My sin's washed by the blood anyway. I'll give up some of my freedom because you are more important than my freedom. Do you walk in such a way? Do you avoid actions that cause your brothers or could cause your brothers and sisters to stumble because you love them? And this goes for your social media posts and all kinds of other things as well. Are there things that you could say or you could do, but you don't because the Spirit has put a check in you that says, don't do that, you could call someone to stumble. If that check is not in you, and if you are willing to push through and say, well, I don't care, that's their problem. They need to grow up. If that's your attitude, you need to check whether or not you truly love your brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's the two big tests that John gives us. Do you obey his commands? I want you to pick up on something here. Obedience to Christ's commands is rooted in love of Christ, right? So do you truly love him and is it expressed in obeying his commands? If you're not on a trajectory of obedience, then don't tell me you love Christ. If you're just willing to do whatever you want to do because you want to do it, don't tell me that you love Christ. John says you're a liar. And I don't mind saying it either. I know it's not politically correct, but if you look me in the eye and you say, I'm going to live how I want to live, but yeah, when I die, I get to go to heaven. No, you don't. Because if you don't have a relationship with Christ who has cleansed you of your sins, you don't know him, you will not gain eternal life. So the first test of salvation is do you love Christ enough to obey his commands? Second, do you love brother, your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are you expressing love to them regularly? Are you putting their needs above your, your wants or your desires? And are you willing to give up some of your freedom to keep a brother or sister in Christ from stumbling? You can know that you know God if you're on a trajectory of obedience and you see your life being transformed into one who loves the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ. If you can't answer both of those in the affirmative, then I would challenge you that your religion is not enough. You can do all kinds of good things in the name of Christ. You can teach lessons, you can preach lessons, you can cast out demons, you can serve people in the name of Christ. But if you're not characterized by the love of Christ and the love of your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're not saved. You can know that you know that you're saved if you're loving Christ by obeying him and you're loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to close out the service with that plea. If this message from God's word has, has pricked your heart and challenged you and you say, Pastor, I don't know for sure. I've gone to church all my life or I've tithed or I've been faithful in attendance, but man, the way... The way you put it, I, I don't know that I really treat my brothers and sisters in Christ that way. I, I, I don't. I, I, I do these deeds because I know that I'm supposed to, not because I love Jesus.
If your heart's struggling with those two questions, I want to challenge you to don't leave here today until you get it settled. Christ says if you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. If you'll repent and turn toward Him, He'll save you and He'll put a new heart in you. And that new heart will begin to produce the evidence that we're talking about right here. So if you don't know for sure, please don't leave here until you get that settled. I want you to stand with me and Matthew's going to come lead us. Nathan's going to come be up here with me. And if you'd have to say, Pastor, if I died today, I don't know for certain if I'd go to heaven or hell, but I want to get it settled. Come meet with me or Nathan. We'd love to talk to you about it. And, and if you're online, reach out. Uh, you can use that, that front page, go to the Next Steps button and reach out with a prayer request or a contact. And we'd love to talk to you about how you can know that you know that you belong to Christ. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.